As promised, listeners, my daughter Afton is my guest today on Red State Blue Mom. Our newest Tennessee House representative from Nashville District 51, a rare female progressive Democrat in a governing body awash with male MAGA Republicans. So let's hear what she has to say. I want to thank Afton for taking time out of her very busy schedule to sit down at our family's kitchen table to talk about her journey into Tennessee politics and kitchen table topics too. I know earlier today, which is a Sunday as we're recording, she had a Zoom meeting with one group in another part of the state and then left the house to attend a long meeting with an Appalachian broadband group here in East Tennessee. Afton, I want to thank you for agreeing to being interviewed for this podcast, since I know you have a lot on your plate. So my first question to you is, will you be answering my texts and returning my phone calls at least within seven days? That's the hope. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hope always shines brightly. (laughs) All kidding aside, I know your life has greatly changed since the day you were sworn into office. So I'd like us to chat a little bit about the swearing-in experience just a bit before we get to bigger subject matter. So let me set the scene here. On the morning of October 4th this month, and that was just a few weeks ago, you were sworn in as Tennessee's newest State House representative, representing District 51, which encompasses a great deal of downtown and East Nashville. Your dad and I were there. And along with your election team, you had some close friends and also colleagues in the political world. The media was there. The Tennessee House Caucus chairman was there. The judge who swore you in, obviously, had to be there. And there were a lot of other people. So I want to, first question I want to ask you is, can you tell us how you felt that day? I was nervous. I grabbed a coffee with my friend Anna, who has the former interviewee of Red State Blue Mom. And you and dad had already driven to the Capitol, and I believe we're inside. We parked and we boogied, as you like to say, across Legislative Plaza, which is right in front of the Tennessee State Capitol. We walked across the street and into the corridor where the state trooper greeted us. And he said, business or pleasure. And I paused and I said, I'm getting sworn in today. <laughs> and his eyes, I I think, got really big. And he said, Oh, are you are you Ben? Are you are you Ben? I said, Yes, I'm I'm I will be representative Bain. And he goes, Okay, well, go go on in. So I grabbed my stuff and Anna and I took the elevator up to the second floor where the house chamber was and all of my friends were there waiting for me. And it was just, it was a moment I'll never forget. Well, I remember the first time I saw you that morning, you had not quite magenta pink on, but a pink suit on. And I had told you in a text the night before that dad and I had planned on wearing pink, different shades of pink to the ceremony. And then, of course, I just said you walked in and then Anna walked in and she had pink on and there were a lot of people there that had pink on. And it was wonderful because I feel that pink was the representative color of your campaign. And it's been a pink girl power summer. And uh, 
In fact, you asked me to give a little speech, which you had told me about beforehand, but I thought because you had the uh, Democratic House caucus chairman giving a speech that maybe that meant I didn't need to give one. So I was not prepared with uh, written down notes, but I headed up to the podium and one of the things I said is it's a pink girl power summer because we have Taylor Swift and Beyonce and Barbie and uh, now Afton Bain and her election and John Ray Clemens, the caucus chairman, had mentioned that this day was historic in the Tennessee House because it had been 50 years since a female had represented Nashville. And I thought it was also very sweet that he brought you a bouquet of yellow flowers, yellow being the representative color of the Tennessee suffragettes, who, and I know you listeners have heard this story before, but I'm going to say it again, we're very proud here in Tennessee that Tennessee women, the suffragettes in our state, gave the whole nation of women the right to vote by being the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment in August of 1920. So here we are 103 years later, and we have Afton Bain getting sworn in, and um, very momentous day. And I also remember saying to you that you have always been a person since you were young in elementary school that always stood up for people that you felt had no voice. Maybe they were too shy to speak, or maybe you just felt that you needed to help them in some way, and you always did that. So um, during the speech towards the end, I think, if I remember right, because I was very nervous, um, I said, I know you will be standing up for those who have no voice, as you've always done, and told you we were very proud of you. Of course, we are, and um, wished you all the best, and then I skedaddled away <laughs> as fast <laughs> as I could. And it was, it was surreal looking around as the Tennessee... General Assembly staff. So these are people who aren't political, but maintain an administrative role within the General Assembly were situated to my left and there were about 20 of them. And then looking out into the they asked all of the um, attendees to sit in the chairs where the legislators normally sit. And then to my right, it was the judge and House Minority Leader Clemens. And and then I said my speech, which I can read a little excerpt. I have it pulled up. Oh, OK. Well, do that for yeah. us. So an excerpt from my speech is as follows. As I begin my service to our state and each of you as your state representative, I ask you to begin your service to your community wherever you live by showing up. Show up and care loudly when people are in need and when it's time to celebrate. Show up to vote, but also show up to join the growing chorus and movement of love and hope in Tennessee. I challenge those who have filled the chambers with me to continue calling out injustice and organizing to catalyze change in our state. Our movement is strong, impenetrable, and growing. Oh, I love it. I loved it then. I love it on a second here around. Yeah. And then the Judge Hedrick, who, for those listening, when you are sworn in, you have to have an active judge uh, deliver the oath that you have to swear upon. And so my judge was Judge Andra Hedrick, who's a judge in Nashville. And I had the pleasure of speaking with her before your swearing in while we were waiting for everything to start. And she told me that she met you through her mother, her mother being at 
pug club <laughs> with her two pugs. <laughs> yeah. And you were at pug club with your pug, Frankie. And I want to give a shout out today to all pugs because this day of recording this is <laughs> National Pug Day. <laughs> and Judge Hedrick, uh, we chatted a bit about one of your constituents, Doug the Pug. Some of you may not know Doug the Pug, but believe me, I found out from the judge that he is internationally famous, not just Tennessee famous, not just nationally famous, internationally, and he also has a key to the city of Nashville, and he has his own day that the city honors him on. Um, who would know that that was all possible for a humble little pug when he was born? <laughs> I think he's the most insured animal on Instagram. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. And I remember when, uh, well, I'll say during the special election on that day, which was August 3rd or 4th, we each of us manned a voting site and you were at a voting site and you sent us a message from Doug's parents, his owners, saying, we saw you at our voting site today and we are rooting for you. And we all kind of went wild, like, oh my gosh, this is a celebrity. <laughs> that, that was Honestly, I just ran for site. office to be closer to the, the puck. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it was, so early on in the campaign, I had sent the Instagram account and email to the info at dougthepug.com. And the title of the email read, Progressive Pug Mom Runs for Office. Oh. And I guess the email was buried within the massive emails they receive daily. And the day that she messaged me, a few minutes later, she said, oh my gosh, I just saw your email. I'm so sorry, I missed it. So we ended up exchanging text messages. And after the August 3rd primary, I was invited to my first Doug the Pug event. Oh my, and what was that? So he launched a health conscious product line for dogs with sensitive skin and sensitive stomachs. And it was quite the entertaining event. We showed up. It was on the rooftop of a boutique hotel downtown. We walked in. We were handed a glass of champagne. And and we were running around. And my campaign team said, you know, make sure you get a picture with Doug the Pug, Frankie, your pug, the owner. And of course, when I went to went home that night and looked at my phone, the only picture of me was scurrying around with the pugs. It wasn't even it wasn't even it was so blurry because I was moving around with Doug and Frankie. <laughs> so then later on in the event, they they announced the the line. And in the corner of the room, there was a doggy massage table. And I'll have to send mom the photo and my boyfriend captured Doug getting a massage in this the basking of this golden light and he just looks like the happiest creature you've ever seen in your life. So you're going to send that photo to me so I can have it posted on Facebook and we'll do that photo and some other pictures from your swearing in that day. So you listeners will want to take a look at the podcast Facebook page. As I said to you after you were elected and I pointed out to listeners in last month's podcast, now the hard part begins. Actually being an elected representative of an urban metro district with thousands of people in a state house that may be exceedingly difficult to maneuver in. 
So I want to ask you, how will you be an effective representative for District 51 when you're part of the minority in a state house that has a supermajority of MAGA Republicans? So I think the question is how you define success. And I think that question varies for different constituents. I think there are constituents who deem success as bipartisanship and working across the aisle. However, when there are human rights on the line, such as the dignity for trans people to not live in fear and the preservation of rights for all LGBTQIA community members to live free from harassment and discrimination and to be honest, the right to bear children when you decide to. And so a lot of constituents and a lot of voters I talked to at the doors throughout my campaign demanded that I care loudly for these constituencies and the issues that are elevated in a deeply Republican far right state. Well, what I want to know is what issues and concerns do you think you're going to try to tackle first for your district? So I ran on a few bills, one of which is a trans bill of rights. I have been working close with trans community organizers and activists and organizations to draft what would be a protection bill for our trans community members in Tennessee. And I think as an accomplice and an ally for trans people, that uh, that would be my, my seminal bill. I've also been working on tax policy, everyone's favorite <laughs> subject matter. Oh my. Right now, 60% of major corporations in the state of Tennessee don't pay their fair share in taxes. And they are using loopholes to to pay their taxes or not pay their taxes in offshore accounts. And so my bill would revise the tax code to make sure corp corporations pay their fair share and that that money would go back into education and our schools, uh, et cetera, in, into our communities. My third bill, because of the state expanding surveillance. So I don't know if you've heard about license plate readers no, I haven't. So license plate readers, certain municipalities across the state of Tennessee have enacted or passed resolutions to put up license plate reader cameras across the cities. And right now, we don't know how that data is being shared with the state, nor how those vendors are sharing that data across state lines. So what do you think that data might be used for? For people, for women yes. going out of state to seek an abortion. Correct. So I don't think we really know right now what data is being captured and how it's being shared. So I hope to draft a bill that curtails that state surveillance that we're seeing right now. And then my fourth bill, I your listeners may not know, but I work in rural economic development. My organization, ruralorganizing.org, passed a major piece of federal legislation last year at the federal level to ensure block grants, which are finite sums of money for distressed rural communities across the country. So part of that is um, I, I want to launch an Office of Rural Prosperity, which some states have already adopted, but it's an inaugural specialized office that only deals with rural issues. And so I feel like Tennessee is a fertile ground for a bill of that type. I like that idea because I know a lot of rural hospitals have closed. And maybe would that help alleviate that situation somewhat? Well, I think Tennessee would have to expand Medicaid. There, mm. There's a lot of federal dollars that we're leaving on the table. And we need to bring home those federal dollars to ensure that some of the rural hospitals that are clinging to life stay open. But it's more for 
the disparities in rural America, rural constituencies are much older. They're much more likely to be on Tennessee state programs, such as our Medicaid program, which is TennCare, and they need a lot more help. And so that office would address specialized needs that rural communities face every day. I like hearing that. I think we need to let listeners know, too, that your position as a legislator is actually considered a part-time position in Tennessee, that normally the legislature only meets from January through May and then does not meet at all. I mean, still is in touch with constituents, I believe, you because they can email you, call you, um, but you or say most people, including you, have to have another job. So your current job, or that, or I should say, you you're still with them, and that's a part time job. And then your legislative job is part time, so that equals one full time job. <laughs> yeah, and I think what people don't understand about the state legislature in the amount of money we make, which pause is. <laughs> An exorbitant $26,000. I sound like Dr. Evil and Austin Powers. And the reason that the salary is so low, well, I don't know. There's lots of reasons behind it. But what it does is it perpetuates a system where low income and young people often can't run for office because who can survive on $26,000 a year? So I think as more young people enter politics, as more young people want to run for the Tennessee General Assembly, that hopefully we'll see more of a campaign to bolster that number so that a lot of us that have to work full-time jobs are able to balance both uh, work, legislature, and life. Work-life balance. I'm all for that. (laughs) Or how about live, laugh, legislate? Okay, I like that one. That's a good motto. We should have that embroidered on something and framed for you for your new office, which I kind of want to talk about next. So after you were sworn in, and then you met with the local news media and did an interview, which I'll talk about a little later in this podcast, you took us up to your office and your campaign, or I should say your election Uh, campaign election people put up a big red bow in front of your door, which actually was the door to your legislative assistant, David's (laughs) office, which I thought was your office. And David had some of the coolest um, posters I've seen because they all had to do with country music and downtown Nashville and all that. David, if you're listening, you have taste. Yes, he really does. And I complimented him on it. But I was all excited because I thought that was your office. And then he's like, no, her office is behind me. (laughs) And we went in there and it's a nice office. It's a very nice office. You have a great view of Nashville looking northeast out of the window. Towards my district. Towards your district. And also with kind of a bit of a view of Nissan Stadium where the Titans play football. And uh, I love the view. And how many of the district reps in the state house get to see their district every day out their window? You're one of the few ones besides um, your office is located right next to one of the Tennessee three, Justin Jones. So Justin Pearson. Oh, it's Justin Pearson. Yes, to my right, if you're looking at my oh, office. Oh, yeah. okay, to the right. I did see a Justin. 
They're both Justins. Yes. But, and I thought Jones. So it's Pearson. Yes. And of course, he represents a district in the Memphis area. Correct. So he would not be able to see that out his window. Well, unless- and I'm, I'm the closest to the legislature. And I think for people listening, the, the, legis- the state capitol and the administrative offices are both in my district. Yes, <laughs> they are. <laughs> so I get a lot of uh, highs from the state troopers that oh, you and dad met. Yes, yes. And they're very nice people. Yes, we really enjoyed meeting them. And the thing about that state capitol building is it sits so high on top of a hill that it's intimidating. I mean, it seemed like it was a thousand steps to get up there, um, probably because we went through the wrong area. (laughs) Now, on the way out, we learned where we need to go so we can bypass all those stairs. Um, But it is beautiful. And it's very what you consider classical southern looking building a courthouse that you think of. Um, Maybe I'll find a picture I can post online of it. Did you want to tell the listeners the story about the Civil War? Oh, uh, yes. The um, John Ray Clemens, um, he was telling us a story about your dad and I about during the Civil War, uh, when the Union troops came into town, General Ulysses S. Grant made a march down the Tennessee State House aisle that we all marched in on, if you want to call it that way, to uh, wait to get into a, a seat at a desk to wait for your swearing in and then your speech and all that. And it just seems like it's a part of history that I never heard of. Um, I am aware, and I think you may remember this, when you were in Girl Scouts, and of course I was your leader for 14 years of it all, from kindergarten through senior in high school, but I do think when you girls were about maybe fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade, I'm thinking 11 years old around there, um, we went on a field trip at the invite of, uh, at the time, it was a state house rep, uh, Tim Burchett. He gave us a very nice tour of the state capitol, and he made a little announcement about the troop and that we were visiting and all that. But I remember telling you girls before we went on the trip, look for the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the grand wizard of the KKK between the legislative chambers of the Senate and the House. And that statue was very controversial at the time, and frankly, for years thereafter. Because what year was it actually taken out and put into the Tennessee State Museum downtown? 2021. Yes, and that was only two years ago. Okay, so that was at least well over two decades more that it took. Very ridiculous that it took that long and sad that it did, but it is what it is. But getting back to your office, I also remember that there's this wall, a drama wall behind your desk and like a credenza type thing with a cabinet. And David, your legislative assistant, said, oh, you have a choice of four colors you can change it to. And it's a very pretty kind of different kind of green. It's not teal, but it's kind of green. It kind of reminds me of nature, frankly. And it looks great. And you said to me, Mom, can you help me decorate this office? And I gave it some thought. And when you came for a visit this weekend for your meetings, and we'll talk about another event you had shortly, and to spend time with the family, I said, I think I've come up with a decorating idea that maybe you'll like. Uh, a lot of you listeners are aware, if you've listened to my March 2022 podcast, that I have a handmade quilt collection. 
I call my collection my women's art collection. And from that collection, I have a quilt with a mostly light pink background of square blocks and interspersed with the same size squares are um, rectangles of different fabric and different patterns and colors that are put together to form a square at the point in the center. And it gives you a lot of color in your office. It's also a little sample of arts and crafts from East Tennessee, from Appalachia. And you will need a glass tabletop for that. And I said I'd get that for you. And the other thing we talked about is getting you some kind of artwork featuring Dolly Parton, the patron saint of East Tennessee. (laughs) And just like you, she was raised in East Tennessee. And I said, how appropriate would it be because of the country music scene being located, for the most part, in your district? I think the recording studios are uh, across the interstate in another district, but for the most part, you do have the bulk of country music. So did you want me to talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I do, because you have Dee's Country Music Bar in your district. That's in Madison, Tennessee. And I, I have a picture posted on our podcast, or my podcast, I should say. Um, I'm going to say our, because you are my guest star today. And it's you and I in front of Dee's uh, after a long day, hot day of Uh, door knocking, canvassing, and getting ready to go in for a drink. And then you told me some stories about Dee's, and I wasn't even aware. So part of it has to do with its influence in country music and the Black Opry, from what I understand. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know what the Black Opry is, uh, there were a few Black musicians and artists upset that uh, only 1% of Black artists are played on country radio over the past 20 years shocking that's horrible so it's it's really an uphill battle for them and so someone who i actually met during americana fest her name is holly g she started the black opry and she organized a ton of black musicians and country music artists to go on tour and to talk about the lack of black talent uh, in the music industry, country music industry. So I'm really grateful for her work. Like I said, I was able to meet her. And I think it's really important because it's important to platform black country and Americana artists. And they also provide opportunities to create connection and community amongst those artists in a, in a, you know, an increasingly far right town, which is Nashville. Um, But the other piece of musical history I wanted to discuss is also in Madison, there is a, um, a farmer's market stationed at a place called Amqui station and Amqui station was constructed in 1910 as part of the Louisville and Nashville railroad, the LNN railroad switching and passenger depot in Madison, Tennessee. And the original station was located in Madison. And by the 1970s, the depot was dilapidated and on the verge of demolition and guess which country music star purchase and saved it dolly johnny cash oh johnny cash hey the man in black (laughs) that's right (laughs) so the man in black picked up the structure moved it to hendersonville which is 10 miles northeast of madison in 1975 and following his death in 2003 the depot was relocated to madison thanks to the efforts of community leaders and discover madison a nonprofit preservation organization so today visitors can once again experience the sights and sounds of passing trains while sitting on the front porch of amqui station 
I'm going to have to do that sometime. <laughs> I'm all excited. All you listeners know I'm a history buff, so I'm going to be there as soon as I can. So let's get back to politics right now. And so you said your office is next to Justin Pearson. I know that before running for office this past summer, you organized several of the protests at the state capitol for gun reform, supporting the stance of the Tennessee Three, the protesters in the House Gallery, and protesters that were at other locations in the capitol building, both inside and outside. And the majority of Tennesseans on this matter, after the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, where three children and three adults were killed. So how does it feel to go from being a community organizer to a different role as a member of the state house? Now you're a house colleague of the two Justins. So for a large part of my career, I was on the outside building power. And what that means, I think, to your listeners is in terms of community organizing, which is your you're building coalitions, you are working on campaigns, you're, you're advocating for issues that you care about, and you are trying to lobby those in power to make decisions on your behalf. And now that I'm on the other side, <laughs> it feels a bit different, but I can honestly say I'm feeling very comfortable in stepping into this new space. I really like the learning from my colleagues. I get to talk about policy every day, which is so exciting, and a vast spectrum of policy from criminal justice reform to housing to uh, Medicaid. And I, I just, I love all of the people that come into my office and they share their opinion and their perspective. And then it's my job as a legislator now to listen to constituents all across my district and to weigh their request and their comments and then to act accordingly. So I look forward to the next session when I'm able to act with my values in terms of those values that got me elected in my district, but to also be more informed about those issues as I vote for pieces of legislation. In last month's podcast, I told my listeners that you and I would chat about the special session that Governor Bill Lee called last August to address, well, supposedly addressed, public safety and mental health in the way of basic gun reform measures, et cetera, due to the school shooting in Nashville. I know you were in attendance there, though as a community activist and concerned citizen, not yet as a legislator since you hadn't won the general election, which was in mid-September. Could you please tell my listeners about your experience at the special session? So I'm thinking in terms of that question, and is there a moment that is seared into your memory as something that will motivate you to facilitate some change. So for those who've never traveled to their state legislature and watched the comings and goings of committee hearings and lobbyists shuffling through the halls and and people who have caravaned across the state of Tennessee to, to join the chorus of people asking for change, it was upsetting. It was deeply upsetting to watch. We saw mothers whose children had died at the hands of gun violence be asked to leave committee rooms because they were holding eight by 11 pieces of paper that demanded change. So 
in this context, a piece of paper was more dangerous than a gun. And they weren't voicing anything. No. They were sitting quietly in the committee rooms holding pieces of paper. So quietly and and respectfully. Yes. And they were asked to leave. And so I think for a lot of privileged white people who have never been treated in this way, I think it was a reckoning for them because here they were these these beautiful Republican mothers who vote according to those who hold power in this state. And yet they were being alienated and they were not being heard. They weren't being heard. And they were silently trying to be heard. Yes, exactly. And I think it was shocking for them. And I, I also want to point to a moment where a journalist came up to me and I felt like his eyeballs were rolling back in the back of his head. And he just he looked at me and said, this is the most chaotic I've ever seen the Tennessee state legislature since my tenure. And I've been here, you know, 10 to 20 years. So and, and the reason for the chaos rest with the House Republican leadership who wanted to make it chaotic because I don't think anyone, none of the legislators really wanted to be there. Governor Lee called the special session and then there was so much pressure on the legislators that they had to act. So it was just, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. But the moment that I deeply appreciated was Thursday night after the special session had culminated And it was organizing an event called Another World is Possible with a few of my peer organizers and a few groups. And we invited mothers and children and students who had been affected by gun violence to step up to a microphone and tell their stories and what their vision of the world looks like, where we are free from school shootings. And I think it's a testament to our communities and those who care about change in the state who come to the state legislature every year demanding that there be change and only met with the intransigence of, of our legislators. But I think it was a final moment. We, we laid electric candles at the foot of the Capitol and it was a beautiful shot. I can, I can send you that photo oh, that as would be well great. for the website. Yeah. But that was a moment I think it was after a very tough, upsetting week of just total disruption. It, it ended with all of us singing and holding hands and believing in a better world. Oh, I love that. I do have a question for you too regarding did the legislature in that session do something to squash the minority voice of, I should say, the voice of the minority legislators, meaning the Democrats? Yes. Can you tell us a little more about that? So every session, the House and Senate chambers create rules for that session. And these aren't perennial rules. These are fluid rules that change based on who's in power. And for the special session, they limited the ability for democratically elected legislators to voice their concerns on behalf of their constituents. And so debate was squashed on the floor. They were, their mics were cut off in committee rooms. And this is routine. Oh, this wasn't just for the, the special, special session. session. This, it happens this all the time. This pattern of behavior, and hence why I think the Tennessee Three moment boiled to a tipping point, was this lack of accessibility for democratically elected representatives to be a voice for their for their districts. So I understand why democratic legislators feel like even though they are leveraging all of the channels available for them to voice their opinions on 
the legislation that oftentimes dissent is limited and prohibited. And so that's frustrating because everyone, every human being wants to be seen and heard. And that's not happening so much in the Tennessee legislature these days. Yeah. And I think we'll see what happens in the spring. But I do think it is to the Republicans advantage to refrain from this authoritarian type behavior in terms of squelching dissent, because the more that they shut off the mics of representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, the more furious their constituents get and the more publicity they get. That's true. And they become even bigger heroes than they already are. And I'm sure that's not what the Republicans in the legislature want. So I'm going to move on here, but kind of not because... So this weekend when you were home as a family, we went to the Texas... A&M football game, I should say the Tennessee-Texas A&M football game, which Tennessee won. Yay, we're happy here because we would all be down in the dumps if Tennessee hadn't beaten Texas A&M. But before we went to the game, you had been invited as a new legislator to an event. Can you tell us what that was at the university and and uh, what you found out or who you met? Every game, I guess home game for the University of Tennessee, the administration holds a legislative tailgate for state legislators, as well as I believe city officials from Knoxville to congregate and to meet with university administration to you know, build relationships and discuss the nuances of, of legislation that would benefit the University of Tennessee system. I was able to meet UT's president, Randy Boyd, who ran for governor, governor in 2018, and, yes. and children went to my school. I was able to meet him and told him that I'd be a fierce advocate for higher education. I was able to meet the UT chancellor. I met a few of my peer legislators, including two women, and also the second in command for the House Republicans, leader William Lamberth. And is William Lamberth from Sumner County? He is. Yep. Okay. Sumner County is notorious. There was an article in the Atlantic written by Ann Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize winning author who went all the way from Poland, where she lives, and went to Sumner County, Tennessee to see the state of politics there because she had heard that it's very authoritarian. And I think the article is titled, Is Tennessee a Democracy? And it was very eye-opening. And a friend of yours was quoted in there, uh, Justin Canoe. And uh, I think he kind of maybe gave her the lowdown or went with her, who knows. But um, is that kind of where some of the tactics in the Tennessee legislature come from, is what they're trying to do in Sumner County, which really is probably, I don't know if you would agree, but from my reading of that article, the most authoritarian kind of county in the state? I would argue that it trickles downward. I think that a Republican, I don't think super majorities are good for any state when it comes to building consensus because you don't have to work across the aisle. And, and I, that's whether you're a Democratic 
supermajority in a legislature or not, or so, a Republican. So, okay. for example, when the Republicans pass bills that the Democrats are in complete opposition to in Tennessee, we don't even have the ability to walk out and stop proceedings because we don't have that many, not enough Democrats <laughs> to do that. So I think that oftentimes the party in power when it's a super majority becomes drunk on power. There's no accountability for the representatives and the elected officials because we have a historical record of gerrymandering and voter suppression. We don't have the ability to pass popular ballot measures as a state. And then the state with a Republican supermajority feels like they can preempt local control of our blue cities like Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis. And so all that to say is that there's not really any accountability for the overreach in power. And until there is, we're not going to see any change. And, you know, when we moved here from Arizona 29 years ago, the state was not like this. It was a very bipartisan legislature. Um, we had one party was the governor, the other party, you know, everybody worked kind of across the aisle. And this has been an evolving situation that we, it didn't come all at once. It came slowly very slowly. And then it kind of bit us. Wouldn't you agree? I think it started in 2010 with the inception of the Tea Party. And I think it's just spiraled since uh, President Trump took power and the type of right wing populist politics. And I think the only reckoning that can come from this is if young people decide to get involved in politics and be the change they want to see in the world. But for a state, I mean, the reason that Vox listed Tennessee as the least democratic state in the country, there's a reason for that. And I think as voters, the minority, I mean, a lot of Tennessee voters want change when it comes to gun control, right? Yes. You saw that at the special session, that even though the majority of even their Republican constituents are asking for something to be done for, for something gun- to be done right they still won't do it and so either you know politically the solution is to get rid of the worst republicans on the right and then to add more democrats to the caucus which is what i plan to do in 2024 that would be nice considering in the tennessee state house there's only two democrats of uh, women that is yes so how many total Democrats in the state house out of 99? I think it's less than 25. So very much a minority. Yes. And you are probably going to have to do a lot of or trying to work across the aisle to get something done. Are you prepared for that? Well, I think what I saw this weekend, these people are not going to be my best friends. But as I as you pointed out during my interview after my swearing in, you you and dad taught me to use the golden rule and I want to treat people the way that I would like to be treated. I know that we will never agree on policies such as preserving gender affirming care for trans kids or to make abortion legal in the state of Tennessee. But I think there are issues that they, at least the Republican legislators, can meet me halfway. But what they told what they communicated to me at the legislative tailgate is that it's all about building relationships. So that's what I plan to do. And that makes sense to me. I mean, how can you get anything done in a vacuum? Nobody can. So now I want to talk about another kind of touchy subject or can be. Actually, I'd say very much right now. So a few weeks ago when I asked you to do this podcast interview, we had no idea 
what was about to transpire in the Middle East. And as a family, I think listeners are aware for we're in our third year now as of this episode of podcasting. I am in my third year. And every Christmas break as a family, or should say holiday break, uh, we go somewhere internationally. We use Sky Miles. um, We go places. We see the world. There's no better education, in our opinion, than seeing the world and how other people live and getting an idea of how they think and do things. And we were supposed to go to Israel and Jordan this coming holiday break. And guess what? As of today, our trip has been canceled. Uh, Part of that was on his morning walk. Dad listened to, he listens to the BBC News, among other podcasts or other programming. And there was a leader of Hezbollah, uh, which is kind of a brother organization to Hamas in Palestine. And they said that they were going to kill as many Israelis and as many Americans who were in the Middle East as they could. So it's probably not such a good idea to be vacationing in the Middle East right now. So we'll take a break, maybe think about going somewhere else. Uh, But in the meantime, we've had some great conversations this weekend as a family about what's going on uh, with this war. Uh, a war Israel is waging on Hamas and Gaza. And you and I, I know, have lost a lot of sleep over this war. So you're a newly minted politician, technically a rookie, who has both Jewish and Muslim constituents, a number of which are Palestinian. Uh, Your best friend, Anna, who we mentioned was the first interview I ever did on this podcast, uh, she's Jewish. And that podcast uh, was last September, or I should say a year ago, September in 2022, and it was um, on being Jewish in Southern Appalachia, and it was a great podcast. Um, Everyone in this family, including your brother, has Jewish friends, and we have let these friends know that our heart is broken for them because they might know someone who has been directly affected by the brutality that started on October 7th with Hamas killing and kidnapping young Israelis at a rave event in the Negev desert, along with their then subsequent or at the same time incursions into Israeli communities bordering Gaza. Your dad and I, we have Palestinian friends in Lebanon, and we are worried about their safety too. Uh, Lebanon also happens to have a large Hezbollah group there, and they're kind of causing problems at the Lebanese-Israeli border right now, as I'm speaking here. And I want to say this. Uh, Dad and I, we talk a lot about a lot of different things. And with this war, we talked about that at our ages, and we're considered senior citizens, your dad and I have never known there to be true, long-lasting peace in the Middle East. We thought by now, frankly, that there would be two equally thriving countries, though two countries with very different faiths, very different ideologies, living peacefully side by side. But unfortunately, still in this day and age, we are dealing with modern critiques of ancient patterns. Not anything much has changed. And frankly, too, no one should be killed in the name of peace, no matter what 
no matter what country, no matter what group you're part of. So our Jewish friends that we know are in shock, they're horrendously upset, and they're frightened about the backlash and violence towards them in this country amid the exponential rise in anti-Semitism since 2016 when Trump became president. I'm sure your Palestinian constituents are also in shock, horrendously upset, and also frightened about backlash too, which has been ongoing since a terrorist attack on 9-11. So with that being said, Anna's mom, Ellen, sent me a screenshot of something she read on X, formerly Twitter, as we all know, from um, a person, uh, his name is Isaac Saul. And Isaac said, quote, people ask me all the time if I am pro-Israel because I am a Jew who has lived in Israel. And my answer is that being pro-Israel or being pro-Palestine or being pro-Zionist does not properly capture the nuance of thought most people do or should have about the issue, end quote. I know from our conversations this weekend that you have routinely sought perspective and counsel from your friends and from your constituents that are Jewish Americans, Jewish Israelis, and Palestinian Americans about the current conflict and how, as an elected official, you should navigate the conflict. Can you give us an idea what they've said to you? Yeah, so I've received a wide range of emails and outreach via my social media platforms that range from evangelicals telling me that trigger warning, all Jews are going to hell. That's why I have to unequivocally support Israel to the what I think would be deemed a far left position in this country, which isn't far left, I think, in the world from my Jewish Israeli friends who believe that who believe who want to see a free Palestine. And so it's been eye opening, enlightening, troubling, and I've done the best I can in terms of grappling with the situation and knowing that within my jurisdiction, I can't do anything at this moment in time. Which has to be very frustrating. Yes, it is. And I think my perspective is unique in that I worked for the United Nations in 2016 during the apex of the refugee crisis. And and would that be the Syrian yes. refugee crisis? Okay. And had ongoing discussions with Palestinians and Israelis and people from all across the world as to this conflict and how to reconcile it. And then in addition, you I don't know if you've talked about Ido on the podcast. I have not, but, <laughs> okay. but feel free to do so. So Ido came into our lives. He was our neighbor across the street in East Nashville. And he's Israeli, lived in Israel, joined IDF, the military force. Uh, Israeli? Well, they're conscripted. So oh, really okay. Try. But he he could not stomach the ongoing requests to surveil Palestinians. And so he defected. And a lot of what I've learned from how Israelis are grappling with the situation and how we can move forward as humanity is on the line, I've learned a lot from Ido. So I think I have a, a unique perspective. It's probably a bit more left than a lot of Americans, 
but I hope people listening and I hope my constituents know that I have really spent a lot of time and energy trying to understand and listen to them because as you said earlier, everyone just wants to be heard. Yes, they do. And I'm very proud of you for being the person who listens to them and maybe tries to find a solution or a way within your constituents in your area to grapple with this this awful problem. So as I step into this new role, I've been holding this quote close to my heart by Audre Lorde. Every day of our lives is practice in becoming the person you want to be. So I wake up every day and I think about the legislator that I want to be in this moment in time of history and politics and that the discomfort and anxiety and fatigue that I'm feeling are a byproduct of growth and that I'm growing into the the person and the leader that I'm supposed to be. Amen to that. So let's now end this podcast by talking about the golden rule in that after your swearing-in ceremony, you were met outside the House floor by a bunch of local news reporters, including Fox News. I saw the microphone. And I heard you tell the news reporters that Dad and I taught you the golden rule. You, you also mentioned it earlier in this podcast. And the golden rule is you treat other people as you would like to be treated. And I always end the podcast by saying this. Long before Jesus and the prophet Muhammad after him, Confucius and Buddha also extolled the golden rule to their followers. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is an ancient universal principle acknowledged by every faith on this planet and by those who have no faith at all. This is a universal principle that works for the greater good, treating people like you would like to be treated. Show good intent be kind, show grace, because on any given day, you do not know what battles another person is fighting, and your kindness and grace can make all the difference in their life, in the lives of those in your state, in this country, and in the whole rest of the world too. 